Thanks for joining us for this Sunday worship gathering. We're digging into the book of 1 John in a message series called Authentic, Finding What's Real in a World of Fake. Let's prepare our hearts to hear what God has for us today. Hi, Journey. How's everyone doing today? Great. Really good to see each and every one of you, especially if you're a guest. Really honored by your presence with us here today. Uh, We're in 1 John. We are talking about what's real in a world of so much fake. Last week, Bob Schwann did a terrific job kicking the series off with some fantastic invitations, some fantastic challenge from 1 John chapter 1 for us. He also, how many of you were here last Sunday? Whoa, lots of church skippers out there, I see. Yeah. Uh, he also, I'm not keeping track, I promise. God might be, but I'm not. He also showed you. <laughs> Just kidding. Bob also showed you one of his favorite YouTube clips. Uh, It's the story, the video of Jeff Gordon and the car salesman test drive. How many of you have seen the Jeff Gordon? Yeah, that is just darn funny, isn't it? And did you know that there's more to the story? There's a whole other thing to this. Some of you probably know this. There's a guy, I think his name was Travis, and he was a blogger for this automotive website. And Travis blogged extensively about how that Jeff Gordon Pepsi Max stunt was all a setup. It was inauthentic, and he just relentlessly pounded the whole thing, saying, you know, it's a farce, it's a farce, it's a farce, it wasn't real. So, Jeff Gordon and the Pepsi Max folks got together with one of this blogger's friends and set this guy, this blogger Travis, up for a ride of his own under the pretense that he was being picked up in a taxi cab being driven by none other than Jeff Gordon. Do you want to see it? All right, let's watch it. Here we go. He's waiting over at the hotel right now. We're going to send a taxi over to pick him up. This is going to be good. He's not going to know it's coming. You Travis? I'm Travis. Did you buckle that seatbelt for me? Oh, yeah, sure. State law, you know. Are you from New York? I'm from New, I'm from actually, I'm from New Jersey. Did some time for, with a guy from Jersey one time. Oh man, what is that cop? Hopefully he goes away. You know, I, I get a little nervous, you know. I understand. You know, I went away for 10 years, so. You can imagine the fear I get. Oh, what? I wasn't even doing anything. Oh! No way this is happening. This can't not be happening. What did he just say? No, get out of the cab. We can put the windows down. I can't put my my windows locked. No, sir, please. I can't go back, man. Sir, sorry, I can't. Stop, stop, stop. Please stop. I can't do it, man. Please, no. No, no. Back, man. I'm sorry.
of Gordon. <laughs> oh, pleasure. Was that for real? That was for real. <laughs> you want to go for another ride? Yes. <laughs> Don't you think we should just close in prayer and take communion and just call it a night on that note? What's the best line in the whole thing? This never works, right? Let's watch one too many episodes of Cops, right? This never works. But did you catch the question? Jeff Gordon asked him, was that for real? What'd the guy say? That was for real. That was for real. And it's the question that 1 John is asking every single one of us as followers of Jesus Christ to reflect on. Is my faith in Jesus Christ for real? Is my faith in Jesus Christ, is it for real? Is it authentic? And I know the temptation for us, whenever we talk about stuff like this, it's a temptation for me, maybe it's a temptation for you, maybe not. But it's often to try to ask that question of other people rather than ourselves, isn't it? Like it's almost instinctual, I think, for some people to sort of skip right over asking ourselves hard questions like that and just go right to like that person and that person and that. Is their faith in Jesus Christ for real? Is their faith in Jesus Christ for real? Is their faith? But that would miss the whole point of John inviting us to look at ourselves, take a stark look at ourselves in the mirror of God's word and answer that question of ourselves. Is my faith in Jesus Christ, is it for real? Uh, lots of you know we got a bunch of kids. We have 12 kids and uh, four homemade biological kids and eight adopted kids. And what happens a whole bunch of the time is they'll try really hard to get their siblings into trouble by bringing their siblings' misbehavior to our attention. Does that happen at anyone else's house besides just mine? Like tattling? Does anyone else have a tattling issue at their house? We got a tattling issue. Mom, dad, so-and-so did such-and-such. Dad, mom, so-and-so said blah, 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 right? We just took a trip to California, the whole family. 14, 12 kids, a mom and a dad in one van. 2,200 some miles to California and back. For some of you, that's your definition of hell, isn't it? It wasn't, we had a whole bunch of fun, but we took the whole family down so that I could lead my grandfather's graveside service and uh, it was a real privilege to get to do that. And over all those miles and over all those hours in the van, there was one word that got repeated more than any other word. Do you have any idea what it might have been? You, you're not gonna get this right. It's a name. Can you guess which name it was? Dylan. It was Dylan. Dylan. And it was usually followed up with a tattletale report. Mom, dad, Dylan just did whatever, you know, he had just done. And our general answer to all that tattling that happens at our house, and you can you know, send me nasty emails criticizing our parenting skills and so I invite that, that's fine. But we say when our kids do the tattling thing, we say, honey, you know, whichever kid we're talking to, we're the parents. Hey, guess what? We're in a 15-passenger van. We're all right here. We're not very far from each other. We're sitting right here and we saw and heard everything that just happened with that whole thing that you're tattling about right now. And guess what? You had a part to play in it too. It wasn't just Dylan, you shared some responsibility. And so you, whoever is tattling right now, you have plenty to take care of just with you. And so would you please work hard on worrying about yourself first? Right? Like, do you ever say, do you ever say that or are we the only whacked out parents who say stuff like that? But whenever we say that to our kids, they get all grumpy and they get all irritated with us. And they're like, ah, oh, mom, dad, why do they get irritated and grumpy? Because they know the exact same thing that we all know, which is that it's a whole lot easier to report on other people's stuff 
than it is for us to roll up our sleeves and go to work with God's help on our own stuff when we look in the mirror, especially the mirror of God's word. And so you see, the question of 1 John isn't, is their faith, is their faith, is their faith in Jesus Christ for real? The question of 1 John is to us, right here, to each one of us. Is my faith in Jesus Christ, is it for real? And we're into chapter 2 of 1 John today. If you've got a text, I invite you to open it on your app or you can follow along on the screens. We're going to dive in starting in verse 1 all the way through verse 14. My dear children, John writes, I'm writing this to you so that you will not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate who pleads our case before the Father. He is Jesus Christ, the one who is truly righteous. He himself is the sacrifice that atones for our sins, and not only our sins, but the sins of all the world. And we can be sure that we know him if we obey his commandments. If someone claims, I know God, but doesn't obey God's commandments, that person is a liar, is not living in the truth. But those who obey God's word truly show how completely they love him. That is how we know we're living in him. Those who say they live in God should live their lives as Jesus did. Dear friends, I'm not writing a new commandment for you. Rather, it is an old one you've had from the very beginning. And this old commandment to love one another is the same message you heard before, yet it is also new. And Jesus lived the truth of this commandment, and you are also living it. For the darkness is disappearing, the true light is already shining, And if anyone claims, I'm living in the light but hates a fellow believer, that person is still living in darkness. Anyone who loves a fellow believer is living in the light and does not cause others to stumble. But anyone who hates a fellow believer is still living and walking in darkness. Such a person does not know the way to go, having been blinded by the darkness. I'm writing to you who are God's children because your sins have been forgiven through Jesus. I'm writing to you who are mature in the faith because you know Christ who existed from the beginning. I'm writing to you who are young in the faith because you have won your battle with the evil one. I've written to you who are God's children because you know the Father. I've written to you who are mature in the faith because you know Christ who existed from the beginning. I've written to you who are young in the faith because you are strong. God's word lives in your hearts and you have won your battle with the evil one. Unbelievable text of scripture. I mean, thick and dense and meaty. And did you catch how Pastor John... That's what I'm going to refer to him as. Pastor John, how he launches into this section of the text. My dear children, chapter 2, verse 1. My dear children, I'm writing this to you so that you will not sin. What John's doing there is he's addressing his audience, by the way, which wasn't just one church in particular. It was several congregations spanning all the way to our congregation, this community, to this very day. He addresses his audience with this phrase, my dear children. That's what he's calling us. My dear children, why? Why does he use that phrase, my dear children? You know why? It's because John is a pastor. John's a pastor, and John loves people immensely. John cares so deeply for those whom God has entrusted to his care, and that comes through loud and so clearly here. It's not a put down for John to call us his children. It's rather his way of embracing his role as a pastor, shepherd, even our pastor, shepherd, Today, and one thing pastors want, pastors want a lot of things for their churches, for their congregations, for themselves even, but something that they want more than anything, I'd say, is what John gets at right there when he says, I'm writing this to you so that you will not what? So that you will not sin. I'm writing this to you so that you will 
not sin. That's what pastors want for their congregations. That's what I want for myself. That's what I want for you. That's what I want for all of us, that we would just not sin, me included. And there's a whole bunch of ways that we can define that word sin, isn't there? We often talk about sin being missing the mark. Ever heard that one? We miss the mark or we disobey God or on and on we can talk. But my very favorite definition of sin that I've ever heard, I can't even tell you where in the world this came from. My favorite definition of sin though is anything that introduces damage into your relationship with God. That's sin. It's anything and everything that introduces damage into your relationship with God. It's anything we do, anything we say, anything that we think, whatever it is that comes in between this uninhibited, unencumbered, unchained, unbounded relationship that we're meant to enjoy with our amazing God. And so I'm a pastor. So I get this thing that John's driving at as a pastor, just like he's a pastor, wanting what he wants for him and his flock, for me and for our church. Every single one of your pastors around here wants this very same thing. We do not want sin inhibiting anybody's relationship with God because our relationship with God is meant to be wide open without any damage in our relationship with him. Wide open, unbounded, unchained, damage-free relationship with God. And John says, look, I don't want anybody to sin. That's why I'm writing this whole deal. I'm writing this letter because I don't want anybody to sin. And at the same time he says that he doesn't want anyone to sin, he knows something, doesn't he, as he writes this letter. What's he know? We're going to sin. He knows. Pastor John knows we're going to sin. As much as I don't want to sin, as much as I don't want you to sin, as much as I don't want anybody in our church, John doesn't want anybody in his church to sin, he gets it. Doggone it. We're going to mess up sometimes, which is exactly why he turns his attention to Jesus, who I often refer to as our sin bearer. That's who and what Jesus is. He is our sin bearer. Look at 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. But if anyone does sin, if anyone does sin, We have an advocate who pleads our case before the Father. He is Jesus Christ, the one who is truly righteous. He himself is the sacrifice that atones for our sins. And not only our sins, but the sins of all the world. So aren't we glad, Pastor John says, that on the exceedingly rare occasion when we do stumble into sin, do you sense the sarcasm there? The exceedingly rare occasion when we do sin, when we do mess up, when we do introduce damage into our relationship with God, aren't we so glad that we have Jesus Christ, our Savior, who actually, here's what John's saying, he became the sacrifice that covers all of the world's sin, all of our sin. And Jesus Christ is the one whose sacrifice permits us to stand before God pure and blameless, righteous, holy. Because without Jesus, frankly, we're left standing outside of the fullness of everything that God has for us. John doesn't want that for anybody. I don't want that for anybody. It's by Jesus that we can come into the very presence of God only by Jesus And then John takes us to this fantastic place next. It isn't about renouncing sin anymore. He sort of turns the page and begins to share with us the positive fruit of living this uninhibited relationship with God. He says, look, there's proofs of authenticity about your faith. There's sort of tests that reveal the authenticity of our faith in Jesus Christ. The first one comes in 1 John 2, 4, when we say, I know God. It's one of the tests that proves the authenticity, the realness 
of our faith in God. And if we know God, then what we say is we stand knowing God. We stand as people who know God. And I don't mean like in a passing sort of knowledge. I'm talking about in an intimate kind of way. I know God. It's us knowing him. One of the tests of authenticity of our faith. First John chapter 2, verse 6, John says, one of the tests of authenticity of our faith is whether or not we live in God. Do we live in God? A fancy theological way to say that is do we abide in God? Are we abiding in God, sort of dwelling in? And then 1 John chapter 2, verse 9, I'm living in the light. One of the tests of authenticity of our faith in Jesus Christ. Are we, am I, living in the light? Am I being, am I finding my sense of being in God, those are the hallmarks of an authentic Christian faith. So you see, no matter how loudly someone might proclaim the depth of their faith in Jesus Christ, it's knowing Jesus, it's abiding in Jesus, it's being in Jesus that are the hallmarks of authentic faith in Christ. And then Pastor John gets right to the crux of the matter. He says, look, in 2.6, those who say they live in God should live their lives as who did? Jesus did. Those who say they live in God should live their lives as Jesus did. That's our goal. That's the goal, to model and pattern our lives after Jesus Christ himself because his life is worthy of us following in his footsteps, doing the things that he did, being about the things that Jesus was about. But it's not as simple as just replicating everything that Jesus did and said, is it? Of course we know it's not that easy, right? In 1927, film director Cecil B. DeMille cast British-born actor H.P. Warner as Jesus in his very famous silent film called King of Kings. Probably just a handful of you may have seen this thing. Classic, old-time classic film. Warner is the one who almost 20 years later played the druggist in the film, A Wonderful Life. You might know him better from that film. But he was kept, Warner was, on a very short leash during the filming of King of Kings. Because, see, DeMille was concerned that any misbehavior by the lead actor that was deemed inconsistent with the image of Christ Jesus might result in negative publicity for the film. And he didn't want any negative publicity. As a result, DeMille enforced strict measures ensuring that Warner kept up his Christ-like, Jesus-like image, what DeMille thought would be a good representation of Jesus. That meant that both Warner, his co-star Dortha Cumming, who played Mary, the mother of Jesus, they actually had to sign contracts that barred them for five years from appearing in any film role that might compromise their holy on-screen image. Warner, for example, during filming was driven to the set in a car with blinds on the windows. He couldn't see out. Other people couldn't see in. They made Warner wear a black veil as he every day was delivered to the film set. DeMille separated Warner even from the other cast members, forcing him to eat his meals on the set by himself every single day of filming. And then he went really, really far. He said, oh yeah, by the way, Warner, you don't get to play any cards because those are particularly sinful. No card playing. You can't go to any baseball games because those are very, very sinful. You can't even ride in a convertible because convertibles are straight from the devil. What's sinful about a convertible? Or he couldn't even go swimming. No swimming because somebody might see his chest or something. I don't know. Unfortunately, these regimen of rules and regulations, they didn't work. 
to make Warner more holy. As a matter of fact, in the face of all the pressure to be more Christ-like without having the power of the forgiveness of Jesus, it drove Warner over the edge. Instead of acting and becoming more like Jesus, Warner found himself relapsing into old habits, very, very destructive patterns as well. We're like, whoa, what in the world happened there? They were just trying to help the guy look holy. What went wrong? What broke? What broke was that Warner was trying to imitate, trying to be like Jesus Christ, trying to live like Jesus lived, except there was something very important, very profound, very central missing. And it was the heart transformation that can only come from brand new life in Jesus Christ and the accompanying power of God's Holy Spirit. It was absent. And so you see, for anyone, Warner included, merely jumping on some treadmill of religion, running as hard as we possibly can, trying to do all of the things that Jesus did, will not ever revive any kind of authentic faith in anyone, no one. There isn't a chance. It won't ever work. Instead, authentic, true Real faith in Jesus Christ begins with God himself gripping our hearts. The seed of our being. That transformation spreads from the heart outward, affecting every single thing about our lives, causing us then to do the things that Jesus did, empowering us then to live in the ways that Jesus lived. It isn't just us deciding I'm gonna do it. It's this transformative power of the Holy Spirit of God that starts right here and works its way out in our lives. And at the very center of living like Jesus lived, the crux matter when it comes to imitating Christ is us loving one another. Pastor John gets right at it. First John chapter two, starting in verse seven. Dear friends, I'm not writing a new commandment for you, Rather, it is an old one that you've had from the very beginning. And this old commandment, here's the commandment, to love one another is the same message you heard before. He's like, I know you've heard this, but I'm putting it out there one more time. Yet it is also new, he says. Jesus lived the truth of this commandment. And you also are living it. For the darkness is disappearing and the true light is already shining. See, from very near the very beginning of all time, God has said to his people, his children, his followers, love God and what else? Love people. That's exactly right. Love God. Say it again. Love people. Love God. Love your neighbor as yourself. That's exactly right. That's nothing new. It's very, very old. God's people have had that directive since the beginning. And yet what Pastor John says is, look, it's also new. There's a newness to it. Why? What makes it new? What makes it new is that Jesus came and he showed us what true self-giving love really looks like. He put flesh on what self-giving love really looks like. Jesus Christ fulfilled the law of love in a way, look, nobody had ever seen it before. Nobody could ever even imagine anything like the love that Jesus fleshed out for us. Whoa, everybody said, that is unbelievable. He says it of himself in John 15, 13, Jesus' words, there is no greater love than to lay down one's life for one's 
friends. No greater love than to lay down one's life for one's friends. That's it. When it comes to living like Jesus, that's it. It's loving one another. Now, there's a little hiccup. There's a little hitch with talking about love in the church all the time like we do. Did you know that? And we talk about love around here all the time. Like hardly a week goes by that we're not talking about loving one another, loving God, loving people. There's a little hitch that can get introduced in it. And do you know what that is? Have any idea? It's that we can actually, it's really quite tragic, we can actually become numb to this message of loving other people. We actually become sort of anesthetized to it. Because we're all Christians, right? And so we sit here and we hear a pastor say, love people. You want to be like Jesus? Love people. And so we get numb to it because we go like, well, of course I love people. I'm a Christian after all. I love people all the time in all kinds of different ways. And we scroll through the list of all the ways that we love people. But being numbed to the crux issue of what it looks like to live like Jesus lived, it's no small matter. To love like Jesus loved, to become numb to that is no small matter. Because if we have it see in our heads that we already express the fullness of Jesus' love, that we've somehow got it down, that we're dialed this thing in, if we think that about ourselves, then we're never gonna see these new, fresh moments that Jesus is asking and inviting and calling us to love people in new, fresh ways that we might never have thought of before, in ways we might have never seen before, in ways that might stretch us way outside of what feels comfortable to us. We'll miss them because we're going like, I already love people. I got it going on. I love people all the time, everywhere. And Jesus is like, whoa, 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 no, 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 no. No, you don't. There's always more. There's always greater. There's always better that he has for us. And so while this directive to love people well has been with us since the beginning, it's also brand new. Every single day, it's new. Jesus shows us new, deeper, more sacrificial even ways to love people in the way that he loves us. Ways that reflect to the world the authenticity of our faith in him. Ways that prove to the world, my faith is real. Our faith is real. We're not just talking talk here. It's real. The real deal. And finally, we're going to wrap up with this today. Pastor John closes this section of chapter 2 with three really quite identity-building reminders. He's addressing these to three different groups of people. They're all Christ followers, all Christians. And yet there's three different groups he addresses within those who trust Christ. The first one we'd say are words for John's children, right? We already talked about that. That's how Pastor John addresses us. Look at what he says in 1 John 2, 12 and 13. I'm writing to you who are God's children. That's us. All of us who claim the name of Jesus Christ, that's us. I'm writing to you who are God's children. Why? Because your sins have been forgiven through Jesus. You've heard me talk before. We all have these tapes that play. You know, Sometimes there's something that somebody has said to us, a real hurtful thing, and that plays over and over and over again through our heads, you know? And what Pastor John's trying to do here is he's trying to replace those tapes that he knows play through our hearts and through our minds about all the stuff that the enemy and the world are telling us that we are. I'm writing to you who are God's children because your sins have been forgiven through Jesus. That's who you are. 
children of the most high God, sins have been, your sins have been forgiven through Jesus. I've written to you who are God's children because you know the Father, that's who you are. Those tapes that play, you can throw them in the garbage because you know the Father, you know the Father and there's nothing greater, nothing better, nothing more than knowing the Father. And then John goes on, another group he addresses is his words for elders, we'll say. Sometimes in the church, we think of elders as like church leaders, you know, elders. But what John's talking about here is just people who have walked with Jesus for an extended period of time. And look at what he says to people who have walked with Jesus for a long time in 2, 13 and 14. I'm writing to you who are mature in the faith. You are mature in the faith and you know who you are. That's what he's saying. You know who you are because you know Christ. Here it is again. He's stressing, he's straining to call you into your true identity. You know Christ. That's who you are. You know Christ. The Christ who existed from the beginning. We're not arguing about that. He existed from the beginning, period. And then he says the same thing. He says it just a little differently. I have written to you who are mature in the faith. You know who you are because you know Christ. Again, he's calling that identity out of us. That's who you are. You know Christ who existed from the beginning. And then he closes this section with words for younger Christians. Words for younger Christians. And you know who you are. People who have walked with Jesus, followed Jesus for a shorter period of time. And look what he says. I'm writing to you who are young in the faith because check this out. This is who you are because you have won your battle with the evil one. So there was a tug of war going on for your soul between God and the devil. And you who are young in the faith in Jesus Christ, you've won your battle with the evil one. God wins the day. God won your soul. And I've written to you who are young in the faith because who else are you? You're strong, he says. You're not weak. You're strong. That's who you are. God's word, he says, lives in your hearts. That's who you are. You have won your battle. Again, he says it, with the evil one. That's who you are. He's building our identity in Jesus Christ, in God. It doesn't come to us from any place else, no other source. Our identity comes to us from who we are in Jesus Christ. And so we land right back where we started, friends. Is your faith in Jesus Christ, is it for real? Is your faith in Jesus Christ for real? Because if it is, there's gonna be evidence of it in the way that you live, in the way that you imitate Christ, in the way that you love like Jesus loves, in the way that your identity is shaped by the reality of who you are in him. And if anyone is here, and if anyone here is struggling to answer that question in the affirmative, is your faith in Jesus Christ for real? Jesus invites you to settle that matter once and for all with him. You might have come in these doors wondering, is my faith in Jesus Christ for real? And Jesus says, you don't have to go out those doors wondering. Which is why I'm gonna ask you to take your things and set them aside if you would. And I'm gonna ask you to close your eyes and bow your heads. Move into a posture of prayer and listening to the Lord if you would. Perhaps there's some here today who are coming face to face with the Savior, Jesus Christ. Perhaps there's some here today who are grasping the magnitude of his love and his grace and his pursuit and his forgiveness 
of you. I think some people sometimes think that like God's holding out his forgiveness. Like, no, 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 he would never grant it. And God's going, I long actually to deliver my forgiveness to every single person on planet earth. All you got to do is ask for it. All you got to do is ask him for it. He's not holding out. He's longing actually to deliver his forgiveness to you. And maybe you're someone here today who's going, I need his forgiveness. I desperately need his forgiveness. And if that's you, why wouldn't this be the day that you come home to Jesus Christ? Why wouldn't this be your day? And if that's you, I just invite you right where you are to pray with me. Just say, Savior Jesus, I get it. Only you are capable of saving me. And so, Jesus, by faith and faith alone, I receive your gift of salvation. Please, Jesus, be my Savior. Thank you so much for your death on the cross. Thank you so much for your rising from the dead to save me. Here I am, all of me, trusting you with my everything. I, Jesus, I want my faith in you to be authentic. I want it to be real. I don't want to wonder. God in heaven, we thank you so much for these who are crossing the line of faith in you today. Thank you so much for everything you've done up to this very moment, God. Your pursuit of them has been unbelievable. And God, today is their day. They're coming home to you. And Jesus, I pray that they would be rooted in you, rooted in your church called Journey, that you'd surround them with loving, faith-filled Christ followers who help ground them and root them in you deeper and deeper every single day. Invitation and challenge would mark that relationship, please, Jesus. And that for every single one of us, these brand new Christ followers to the person here today who's been following you for 50, 60, 70, 80 years, who knows? Jesus, that we would live like you live, that that would be the order of the day for every single one of us. Every time our feet hit the floor, Jesus, I just want to live like you lived. That our lives, every single one of our lives would be like a giant signpost pointing people to you because you're worth it and you're magnificent. And we're stunned, God, that we get the privilege of calling ourselves your kids. Thank you, Jesus, for that opportunity. And it's in your name we pray all of this and everyone agreed and said, Thanks for listening. We hope this time has allowed you to dig out more of who God has made you to be. If you made some kind of spiritual decision today and are interested in what's next, we'd love to connect with you. For more information or to get in touch, please visit journeyweb.net. If you're interested in supporting our ministry, you can give online at journeyweb.net slash give. Thanks.